and welcome to the 212 podcast. We are a podcast that tries to shine some light onto the whys and hows of people who choose to be in the arts, entertainment and events biz. Our guest on the podcast this week is an icon in music. He is the drummer of the Rock and Roll Hall of Famer genre-defining band Talking Heads, as well as the legendary and iconic band Tom Tom Club. As well as this, he is an author with his new book, Remain in Love, which, if you love music, you should have your eyes firmly attached to. Without further ado, please welcome to the podcast, Chris Franz. How are you and where are you today, Chris? Oh, thank you, Daniel. I'm in Connecticut, just about just a little over an hour's drive north of New York City. We've lived up here since 1985. It was a great place to spend the pandemic, you know. <laughs> Beautiful. Is there a lot? Is there, I guess there's a lot of nature up there then. Yes, uh, we're surrounded. We, we live on a large pond, which is fed by a stream. We have ducks and geese and turtles and bullfrogs and deer and raccoons. And we also have two beagles. Oh, nice. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's painting, painting a delightful picture to spend your lockdown in, for sure. I wanted to talk to you about, I guess, the start of your career. Obviously, at the moment, you've got the the book that's out, which we'll definitely want to talk to you about. But I wanted to start with how you started in your career. Where did you grow up and how did music influence your life to the point where you became a part of these multi-award winning bands? Well, I grew up, my, my father was in the military, so we, we moved around a bit, but not maybe not as much as some people did. Uh, military families because I think around when I was around eight years old my mother put her foot down and said we're not moving anymore (laughs) and I so I I grew up in western Pennsylvania Pittsburgh area and I went to what we call public schools I was very fortunate to have some good music teachers in these public schools that uh, were very uh, you know thoughtful and actually excellent teachers and i i started playing drums uh, i actually began on trumpet and my my teacher said uh, well i was having great difficulty with the trumpet even though i was trying i was putting in the hours of practice and everything and i went to my teacher and i said uh, you know i'm really having a problem i'm not getting anywhere and he said well, Chris, you've got a great sense of rhythm. What do you say we switch you to drums? And I said, okay, because I didn't care what I played. I just wanted to play, you know. And uh, he gave me the little drum pad, which is, uh, you know, a piece of wood with a rubber rubber pad stuck to it and a pair of sticks. And he gave me the book and gave me a few lessons of the rudiments. And I practiced really hard. And next thing I knew, I was I was having success at that instrument. At what, drums. You, you said trumpet there, but you must have had, you know, drums must have really kind of called out for you. And you, you, you really felt like you were a better drummer than a trumpeter, maybe. Yes, I, I was definitely better at drums than I was at trumpet. Yes. Uh, and I was happy to play drums because... Uh, one of the things we did was march in parades and, you know, halftime at the high school football games and things. And, and it was, you know, it was exciting to be out there banging the drums. 
Yeah, and how did that how did that transcend into actually getting in a band? Uh, do you remember the first band you were in, and and then what was the obviously Talking Heads was such a huge influence on a lot of musicians. How did how did that come about? And do you remember the first first band that that you kind of uh, sunk your teeth into? Oh, definitely. Uh, the first band. Well, what happened, Daniel, was the Beatles came out. The Beatles came to America. They played on the Ed Sullivan show. And I was just one of many thousands of, of young guys that saw the Beatles play and decided he wanted to be in a band like that. I mean, I, I looked at them and I said, look at how much fun they're having. Look at look look at how much how much the girls love them and adore them and and listen to how great the music sounds it was always starts with the girls chris doesn't it yeah yeah it does i had a, a bunch of friends in my what we call middle school band were of, of the same mind as me they wanted to form a band to be like the beatles <laughs> and so we formed a band and it was called the Lost Chords. I still love that name. It's a great name, I think. Was that, so that was formed with your friends from school? Yes, my friends who also played in the, the school band with me. And the interesting thing about the Lost Chords was our lead singer, it was a great lead singer, also played trumpet. And uh, we had a member of the band that played trombone as well. So we had guitar, bass, drums, trumpet and trombone which is you know like not your standard rock lineup uh, but we didn't know what the standard was in those days so we just we just went with the horns and it was cool because we could play we could play songs that were not uh exactly well not exactly rock and roll we could we could play songs like um by Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, who were enormously popular at the time. Uh, every time they released a record, it went straight to number one in America. So we played some of that type of music, but we also played, you know, the Beatles, Paul Revere and the Raiders. Uh, we were very big on the Dave Clark Five and the Ventures. There's a band called the Ventures. You remember them? And... Uh, we love the ventures uh, they had a song in particular called walk don't run it was a big hit at the time did you get to play uh, you you were listening to to those bands and 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 you were finding the influence there when you when you made uh, you, you know when you had great success did you actually get to end up playing with some of those and was that quite a, an emotional experience for you when you did i don't think we ever played with any of my uh childhood musical heroes but i i did get to meet some of them and uh it was a great pleasure to meet them and they were all cool you know i i did i didn't have that experience where you meet somebody and they're a jerk you that's know? exactly what you want isn't it you want to just meet your heroes and, and find they're actually a nice guys you know yes which which was my experience yes where were you? Where were you playing in the early days? I, I guess Talking Heads was that that main focus when you really kind of blew up. Where were you playing, and how many were you playing in front of, and how long did it take before you actually, uh, you know, it, it exploded? Well, our first uh, gig with Talking Heads was in 1975, uh, the, in the month of May, 
So it's been a few years, <laughs> but uh, we were very fortunate to we we moved to New York because to us New York would be the well Tina David and I David Byrne and I moved to New York in the the fall of 1974. Uh, Tina and I had graduated from the Rhode Island School of Design in Providence, Rhode Island. And David, David had dropped out of the school, but he was still there. And uh, he and I had been playing in a band called The Artistics together. Uh, Tina was not in that band, but she, she loved what we were doing. She was my girlfriend. And we, we moved to New York sort of with the idea that maybe we would start a band. At least that was my hope. We were also painters and uh, visual artists, so so we weren't quite sure if we would, you know, be a a visual artist or a musical artist. But when we moved to New York, we went to a well. A friend of mine lived sort of catty corner across the the Bowery from CBGB's, uh, which was a dive bar, just a just a basically a dump of a bar, and he said. The first day I moved to New York, my friend said, you know, Chris, I know you're interested in starting a band and there's something going on across the street at this place called CBGB's. You should check it out. So I did. I went across the street <laughs> that night to CBGB's and there was there was nothing happening because it was it was uh, the middle of the week. But somebody said, uh, come back, come back on uh on Saturday night, the Ramones will be here. And so I did. I went back on Saturday night and I saw the Ramones and it was so wonderful, so exciting. There were maybe there were maybe 15 or 20 people in the audience. That's it. And and all of them were either the girlfriends of the Ramones or their brothers and sisters. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the that's the same story for a lot of uh, bands when they're up and yeah. coming. When did when did it change for you? When did you kind of sit back and go, oh, this is this is this has stepped up a gear? Well, uh, you know, the CBGBs went kind of along those lines for some time until we did our first gig. I think I said in in May of '75, which was opening for the Ramones. I went to Hilly Crystal and I said, uh, Hilly, we, we have a band and we, we, we'd like to audition to play here at CBGB's. And he said, well, I guess I could put you on in front of the Ramones. <laughs> and so that's how, that's how we made our debut at CBGB's. And uh, again, there was maybe 20 people in the audience, maybe because we added a few people, 25 <laughs> you know, uh, it was the the crowd was pretty sparse, but we we got a good reaction even from the Ramones fans, which was kind of wonderful. So we, we uh, continued to play there at CBGBs, and then it, that summer, Hilly had a had a thing called Festival of Unsigned Bands. That was when the crowd started to come. Well, I, sh I should say that one of the big draws at CBGB's in the very early days was Patti Smith and the Patti Smith group. And they were they were just fantastic, you know, 
And the first time I saw Patty, it was just herself and Lenny Kay on guitar. It was, it was not a full band, uh, but it, it was one of those performances where the you know the hair on the back of your neck stands up, and I I felt really really moved and really I felt like I was in the right place. And, I mean, two two bands, Patti Smith and the Ramones, you must have seen them when they were not as famous as they, they eventually got. And and like you said, with the hair standing up on your, your neck, you, did you did you know at that point when you were looking at them going, these are this I'm in the presence of something really amazing here? Yes, I, I did feel that. And there was also television, a band called Television, and there was also Blondie. Although the first time I saw Blondie, it was – she wasn't even, her band was not even called Blondie. It was called The Angel and the Snake. <laughs> I, I guess she was the angel and Chris Stein was the snake. <laughs> you, you, you can definitely assume that, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I, it, was, it was very clear to me that there was something very interesting happening down there at CBGB's. And, and uh, one good thing about it was it wasn't just musicians who, who frequented CBGB's. It was also uh, writers and young filmmakers, Jim Jarmusch, for example, video artists, Philip Glass would come in to check us out, Lou Reed, architects and designers. And it was a very interesting crowd. You've you've spanned a few years in different bands now, and have you seen the different types of people and genres change as you went through the the, the decades and years? Now you're looking out onto to, to people when you were performing that that and the you know there's, this is a different um, environment altogether. Well, well, our, over the years, our audience has gotten a little older. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I'm, I just had my 70th birthday, so, you know, I, I'm no spring chicken anymore, but, but, uh, and most of our audience is not either. Although, thank goodness, we do attract some younger people. Yeah, over the years, for, first it was punk, and then it was new wave, and then it was, oh gosh, uh, sort of a new romantic thing going on. And, and then, Oh, the 90s, the, the the dreaded grunge period came through. And I mean, I have great admiration for Nirvana and for uh, Pearl Jam and, and all those cats. But for us in Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club, that was not our most uh, wonderful period of time. Uh, then grunge passed and everything was cool again. <laughs> and And now... Gee, I don't know what's happening. I mean, every uh, we'll find out when when the venues open up again, which which they are doing this summer. They're starting to open up again. We'll we'll see what the kids are wearing and looking like. Yeah, it seems like there's more of an openness now to 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 anything. You know, every type of music is not is on the on the table. I wondered about. Um, taking a bit of a segue I, I wondered you know you with you as a performer it seems natural I wonder if you still get nervous about going on stage and and it, even if you you know the last time you played you know was did you still get did you still get those nerves I do get nerves but not every night it's it's it, it's funny you can't really I can't really predict 
when I'm going to get stage fright or not. But I do get it sometimes. I would say that uh, it, it's 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 no fun at all. But I but I go out there and I usually after I after after I get through the first song, I realize uh, uh, everything's going to be okay. This is not so bad. <laughs> yeah. and, and but yeah, it it's it. I never used to have stage fright when I was young. It becomes it, it came to me when I got older and I. I could imagine all the things that could possibly go wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? Definitely. I mean, you hear those those old adages, don't you, of people having nightmares about them getting on stage and they're they're, they're naked or something, you know? Yeah. I, my nightmare my my nightmare is that I'm doing a big performance, probably in London or something like that, and. I walk out on the stage and my drum kit is all in pieces and I have to assemble it very quickly in front of the audience. <laughs> <laughs> and and Tina, Tina has one that, that, uh, she, she, she goes out on stage and, um, all of a sudden there's sheet music in front of her of some song that she's never played before. And she looks over to David Byrne and says, David, what's this? We've never played this song before. And, and he says, oh, didn't you read about it in the new, new Musical Express? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we ha- we all have our nightmares. You know? Yeah. I guess when you, when, you, when you started, how did you view success back then? Did, you know, you've done so much and, and you've you've been with so many people you've got so many of these amazing things i mean rock of our hall of fame is is such an amazing uh, achievement but what did you what did you view success like well we came from art school and our whole idea of success was being able to make our mark in music history that was our idea it was not gold records or platinum records or any anything like that it was like being remembered down through the ages you know the way the great artists are remembered the matisse or andy warhol the way the way these people are are remembered and revered and and that's that was our our goal and and we we were very don't get me wrong we were very happy when a few dollars started to come in and we started to be able to afford to buy a house for example that that made us feel very very good but the real idea of of talking heads was to to dig down deep and to reveal something to our audience that maybe they hadn't seen or thought of before and to have them remember that that was our goal so like a visceral experience and 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 that, that probably ties in with the stuff that you were doing with art as well one thing that was in, instilled in us when we were in art school was that, you know, it's okay to copy the people that came before you, the people that you admire and the people who inspire you. That's what everybody does. And that, and that's fine. But there, but if you ever want to be taken seriously as an artist, then you have to dig down really deep and you have to come up and reveal something to your audience that is unique unto yourself that they haven't seen before. 
that's what's going to make your mark in music history. And you've probably, you can probably tick that off the list and say you probably feel like you've achieved that now. I'm happy to say, thank God we did achieve that. <laughs> you know, we did. And I wonder, it's, you know, some relationships kind of run their course, you know, relationships, friendships and and and, and the like. I guess it's two part um, question, really. Um, how do you maintain uh, a relationship while playing in a band um, together with with Tina? And how do you and, and is there kind of a magic number where you there's a certain amount of years that go by in in, in a band, do you think, where you, it might run its course? Um, I'm, I'm thinking of a lot of different bands that have kind of had that period of time where they've they thought, do you know what? Five, ten years, fifteen years—that's that's that's enough. And how do you maintain that, you know, in the band with with Tina for for so long? I feel very fortunate that uh, Tina and I have a good chemistry together. We always have from the moment we first met. But but uh, I would add that it really helps to be kind to to your partner, your whether they're a musical partner or any kind of partner. Show some kindness, and hopefully the kindness will be returned. It's, I think it's also important to, to uh, have a good sense of humor. And whenever possible, you know, I try to make Tina laugh. And, and she does that to me, too. And, and laughter, laughter is a wonderful thing in relationships. I mean, uh, you know, well, Tina has said this, and I agree with her. That it's important to not only uh, give love, but also be able to accept love. So it's it's like a give and take thing, and and I think we all know this, we we all feel this way, but but some of us are, shall we say, uh, not able to get out of our own way. <laughs> yeah and it's a, it's a, it's a highly stressful and sometimes confusing environment that you would have been working in over the years as well. Yeah, we had we had you know, we had our ups and downs, but we we uh we're very happy to say that most of them were ups and and we're still up. <laughs> One of the things as as I was reading through uh, obviously there's so much to read read about Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club but Redman, Ziggy Marley, Mariah Carey have all sampled Tom Tom Club's Genius of Love. Is is that a compliment to you when people sample sample your songs? I feel it is complimentary. It gives it gives your song a new life. That song Genius of Love is like a magical song to me. Uh, I couldn't tell you how we wrote it or how we came about i mean i can tell you step by step how we did it but overall it was just like a a, a work of magic and um and uh the fact that other people felt the same way about it just i love that i mean and uh i think i i i told you earlier the the latest cover version of genius of love is by, a, by an American hip-hop artist called Mulatto. And she is a person who won some kind of hip-hop reality show contest. And now she's got a record deal with RCA and her, her first release is, you know, a song. it's going to be a song called Energy, which is uh, based on Genius of Love. It's amazing, isn't it? Because genius of love could actually just cross so many different genres when you put it in, in into a song. 
well, in the 1980s when it came out, what was it, 38 years, 40 years? No, it was 40 years ago. I mean, that song is 40 years old. Wow. <laughs> but but uh, when it came out, it was what they called the urban audience that bought it, in the United States anyway. The urban is, uh, is uh, code for black. And uh, so it was black people who were buying it. Which made you know, which made me feel very good, and and like, I felt like, oh boy, we've crossed over finally, because you know, as as a recording artist, the people who do very well are the people who cross over from one genre to another, and and we had done that from punk, new wave, to uh, R and B and hip hop. They didn't even call it hip hop then. They they called it rap. And uh, you know, after after all the the black kids started started buying the record, then slowly but surely, white people started buying it too. Particularly when they heard it in discotheques. And one thing Tina Tina and I had in our heads when we recorded the song, and the that whole first album by tom tom club was that we wanted to make a record that people would love in the 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 nightclubs that we frequented in new york like the mud club and danceteria and the paradise garage and certain after hours clubs (laughs) where where, you know if the dj played it everybody would hit the dance floor and and that's what happened with that song did you like that growing or have having it evolved into into that category of hip-hop or, or rap or w- did you like that type of genre as well or did you learn to to like it growing up i liked it right away i was not one of those people who went up to the south bronx or anything like that i was firmly rooted in you know lower manhattan and in fact and in fact we were living at the time we were living uh well, we, re- we, we, we recorded the song in the Bahamas at Compass Point, but we were living in New York uh, in Long Island City in a loft right across, right across the river from the United Nations building. And, uh, you know, we, I li- I, the way I found out about rap and hip hop was on the, the radio. WBLS and WKTU in in New York were the the stations that were playing it. When they started playing Genius of Love on on those stations, I was in heaven. But but you know they they broke they broke certain songs in America. One was Genius of Love. Another was uh, Numbers by Kraftwerk. These were these were the the radio stations that were playing that that song, not the rock stations. When I was driving in my car, I would be tuned into the R&B and the dance music stations. Who, was, who, who were you seeing on those, those urban and hip hop stations when you were, when you were, is it like Grandmaster Flash, Sugar Hill Gang type of? Yeah, Grandmaster Flash, Sugar Hill Gang, LL Cool J, The Treacherous Three, Roxanne, Shantae, that that whole scene was just exploding at that time, 
And uh, some of the people were really like kids, like LL Cool J. I think he was 17 when he started, something like that. You know, uh, Roxanne, Roxanne, Ro- Roxanne Chante. She was like, she was a young teenager. So these these were not seasoned professionals. These were like kids who were just uh, really excited and and anxious to express themselves. You know, the need for for creative expression is a very powerful need, and it it is something that can really it can really move you to do great things. It can also move the audience. Definitely, and I and imagine you've had uh, you. I mean, you've influenced so many different bands um, with 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 the music that you've made. You mentioned there with the uh, you know seventeen teens uh, teen years. How old were you when you first kind of made it? There's no p- preparation in place for for fame, and I wonder how did you deal with that, and how old were you at the time when when you you know you kind of exploded? <laughs> well, you know. I, I don't know that Talking Heads ever really exploded. There was a guy named Matthew Kaufman. He had a record label called Berserkly Records, which had the Modern Lovers on it, you know. And uh, he, he released the, the Modern Lovers demos that, that became the first Modern Lovers album, that great album with Roadrunner and She Cracked and all those songs. And he said he was interested in in signing us to to his label. And he said, the way I see your success is a slow upward spiral. That's the desired type of success that you want, a slow upward spiral so that when you come back down and everybody does eventually come back down, it's also a slow downward spiral. And, And so that made a lot of sense to us, that that idea, that concept. And, and so we always looked for, well, we, there were times in our musical career where we put the brakes on so that, so that success would not be overwhelming, so that we could like control things a little bit ourselves. Well, you know, our first hit record was was our first hit single was uh, in 1978 with an Al Green song called "Take Me to the River," and that got into the top 40, and that was a big deal for uh, in America, the top 40, and th- that was a big deal for us because that meant we could we were on a new list of bands, uh, the list that could get gigs that you know we could get. We had more opportunities in front of us. We rode this slow spiral upward until I guess we hit the the stop making sense days, the movie, and that was when David pulled the plug. So, uh, uh, you know, no more touring. We still made a few records and we made some good records, but there was no more touring, which was completely crazy because Talking Heads was a well-known touring band and, and we put on an excellent show, you know. We, many people say that our shows, live shows, were better than our records. And was that but, when you were like just on your, on, on the, the height of your, your career? Yes. You, you were on the, yeah. 
after after years and years of you know you could say sacrifice you could also say many good times but but you know we had worked really hard and then from from 1974 until 1983 almost 10 years and then david decided he didn't want to tour anymore so you know that was a downer <laughs> what did you do what did you do after that you just put all of your energy into tom tom club no we still continued with talking heads up until 1990 or 91 but we all yeah talking heads and tom tom club sort of uh we're going side by side at that time. Yeah. Yeah. You've you've collaborated with so many bands. If you look at uh, I look at your your catalog of 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 records, I wonder if there's anyone that you got to collaborate with. Um, I know you mentioned earlier that you didn't necessarily play with some of the bands that you enjoyed growing up, but did you get to collaborate with anyone that you were were, were all just kind of sat back and go, "Wow, this this is this is really amazing. I'm, I'm, it's great to be here. Well, Tina and I started producing bands, and uh, one of the bands we we produced was Ziggy Marley. That was the first one, Ziggy Marley and the Melody Makers, and uh, that was that was a big success. It was the best best selling reggae album of all time at its time at it uh, when it was uh, when it hit. And then we then we we did two albums with Ziggy, and then we did an album with the Happy Mondays, you know, from Manchester, England, and that was <laughs> pretty insane. Yeah, good old Bez and Sean. Yes, Bez and Sean and Paul and it, you know they they were good guys, but they were pretty fucked up. <laughs> they loved, they loved to party, and nobody warned us, you know, when when we were. We had heard about the Happy Mondays, but we didn't know that all about all their bad habits. And uh, so we accepted the gig because we, we loved Tony Wilson of Factory Records. We, we knew him and we admired him. And uh, we thought he had, you know, great taste in music and everything. So when he when he asked us to do it, we said yes. And then we got down to Barbados which is where we made that album at uh, Eddie Grant's studio. Uh, it was kind of a nightmare. I got my first gray hairs to making that record. <laughs> and and it's, the record was thoroughly slammed by all the critics in, in England who wanted the Happy Mondays to make another dance record. You know, their previous successes, successes had been produced by Paul Oakenfold, a, a, you know, a dance producer. When they came to us, they said, we, we don't want to do another dance record. This is in the, the days of Nirvana and Soundgarden and Pearl Jam, the dreaded grunge days. And, and they said, you know, we want to we play our own instruments on this record. And so we said... Yeah, you should be able to play your own instruments on this record. And and so so they did. The record came out and it was it was a enormous flop. In the in the years since there has there have been a few people who say, "Well, why was this record a flop? It's actually kind of interesting." But 
anyway, it, it was it was a nightmare of an experience. And, uh, you know, Bez, the first day of recording, Bez, who doesn't really play anything, but they brought him down to be part of the vibe, you know, was was doing donate donuts in a sugarcane field. The studio, Eddie Grant's studio was surrounded by sugarcane fields. He was doing donuts in this Jeep, uh, convertible Jeep, which he flipped over. And the Jeep landed on his arm and practically severed his arm. I can remember, T- this is the first day I can remember <laughs> Tina holding his arm like so it wouldn't like, trying to hold it so it wouldn't like break off, you know? And we got him to the doctor. And that was your introduction? That that was the first day, yeah. And uh, <laughs> they built, they built, Poor Bez, he had like it looked like the Brooklyn Bridge on his arm. It, they they built something to hold it all together, and then he went. You know those banana boat rides that you know you're towed yeah. behind. He went out on one of those. He towed behind a motorboat in the ocean, and he broke it again. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Sean wanted to take all of his painkillers. It was a bad scene, and uh, then then they got involved in crack. They found out there was crack down there in Barbados, and uh, and the rest is history. The rest is history. But another project we did after that, well, we did a number, but one in particular was with Shirley Manson, who who we adore. She's so great, and it, it was her band before garbage she had a band called angelfish and we produced that and bruce vig saw the video the video was shown one time on mtv and butch vig happened to see it and he said oh that's the girl i want for my band my new band garbage and so uh we we loved working with Shirley and the, the the whole band was great actually. Yeah, it's a re- it's a it's a yeah. I think they don't get enough credit for for what they did. Yeah. What's uh? I wonder the you would have had so many stories and media and 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 everything released about you. Some good, some bad, probably. But I wonder uh, what the biggest compliment you've received from someone about your music is. Uh, like from 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 both actually from Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club. Is there like one that sticks in your mind that's that's probably the biggest compliment that you've received from both of those? Well, I'm happy to say, Daniel, that we we've received many many compliments. So it's it's hard to pick out just one, but I I would say uh, people people tell us that they've taken up musical instruments because they heard our playing, uh, because they heard Talking Heads or they heard Tom Tom Club. Like a lot of people say, they started playing bass because of Tina, and some people say they they maybe a, a not quite so many, but some people say. You know, they love the way I play drums and they love the grooves on uh, Talking Heads and Tom Tom Club. So that that makes us very happy to hear that. And some people play their songs at, 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 at their weddings and hopefully not too many funerals. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a bit too upbeat for a funeral, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
what do you think the future of music look like, looks like? Because you've you've crossed so many um, different decades, and you would have seen so many genres come, as you were mentioning the grunge there. But what do you think future music looks like? I'm I'm trying to remain optimistic. It, it's um, it seems to me that music has become sort of less of a of of a potent force. Uh, you know, in in the '60s and the '70s and the early '80s, music was very potent. Even the '90s, music could really change people's attitudes and and influence people's attitudes. Now it seems to me that that most of the music is kind of like uh, I have to be careful because I don't want to sound like an old fart. <laughs> but but it seems to me that music has kind of taken a background or is in the background compared to other things like uh, you know fashion and Instagram and sports. I mean, many people still love music, but. <laughs> Popular music seems to be kind of like, excuse me, could you turn that down? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know what you mean. And it also seems to be a lot. I guess it seems a lot easier uh, to make and produce music. And I wonder if there was a the period of time, you know, pre two thousands, where it was a little bit more difficult. So there was a lot more of labor of love that went into it. Yeah, I, I think people still put a lot of labor of love into their music. I have no doubt about that. There's a, there's a whole new set of bands that are coming up now that I don't even know their names, you know, but but they're they're going to they're going to change the way people think about things, the same way that Talking Heads and Patti Smith and Television and the Ramones and Blondie, the same way we did. There's there's a whole new set of bands that are going to do that all over again. I'm I'm confident of that. It's 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 not any easier than it ever was. It's really it's really hard to get to get your your band your your song in front of a a large group of people that are going to hear it and enjoy it and go out and buy it. You know, it's it's yeah. it's. It's the struggle continues. Yeah, <laughs> the vicious cycle. Chris, we're coming to the end of the episode, and um, I just wanted to to kind of pick your brains about about the book, really, and and the success it's having. And I guess uh, ultimately, seeing as she's been your, your, your side by side with you the, the, for the whole time, what did Tina say about the book before it was released? Well, Tina was. I was so happy. You know, I didn't show Tina the book until I had finished writing it. I mean, I did ask her, I consulted with her about certain things like, Tina, do you remember this? Am I right that this event happened in this particular way? And she would say yes or no, or usually our memories were the same. When I finally showed it to her when it was finished and, and she read it, and by the way, it, when I say finished, it wasn't edited yet, and she helped me with the editing a great deal, really a lot. But uh, she liked it. I was like, oh, thank God. Because <laughs> if she hadn't liked it, it may ne have never come out, you know? <laughs> well, she's, she's, your, she's your sounding board, isn't she? She is. And vice versa, you know? Yeah. 
Um, so what did you, so, uh, uh, the, the book itself, I mean, it, it goes into great detail about Talking Heads and, and, and Tom Tom Club and, and just you uh, growing up, I guess, um, in, in the music scene. But what would you say to people uh, that haven't read the book and, and why they should, they, sh- they should give it a read? Huh. I would say, check it out. I think you're going to like it. It's a love story about music and art and a beautiful, beautiful girlfriend, beautiful bride. And uh, it doesn't exactly have a happy ending, but it has an ending that allows you to think that things are not so bad. <laughs> I, think uh, that's, I think that's the perfect uh, cliffhanger uh, for people to, uh, to definitely uh, delve in and, and, and give that uh, a read. But Chris, it's been an absolute like honour, really, for me. I've, I've, I, I love both bands, and, and, and they're heavily on my playlists as well. So it's been a real pleasure for me, and thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you for calling. Thank you.